following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 11th, 2022. On this week's show, we're cutting through the chaos of NIL and realignment and plotting out the future of college sports. Don't worry, we solved it. I'm also going to speak with tennis writer Ben Rothenberg about Novak Djokovic's win over Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon. And finally, we'll look at the future stars and or possible non-stars of the NBA Summer League, including the 7-foot-a-million, 195-pound Chet Holmgren. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but joining me from California, it's Slate staff writer, the host of seasons three and six of Slow Burn, Joel Anderson. Joel, I kind of mentioned the glasses last week, but I didn't really linger on the glasses. And so I just wanted to give the audience a chance to hear you talk about the aging process, um, kind of getting decrepit, and just what how that makes you feel. Do I look like somebody that could have gotten into Michigan or Brown at this point with my glasses on? Harvard. Harvard, not Michigan. Yeah, okay. Well, that too. Well, I mean, Ivy League school, but, you know. Do I look like I could do that one way or another? You always, you always look like that, Joel. Yeah. Now you just look like somebody who's old. Yeah, well, you know, I used to wear personality glasses in college. That was a year. Oh, really? Actually, it was kind of a it was kind of a summer when I was trying to think out, and uh, I did wear personality glasses. So this is not is that, that why Coach Patterson was a little bit down on you? Well, this is I was already cut free from. <laughs> from <laughs> so I was free to do whatever I wanted, uh, but you could see how you could see how he would have not wanted me around this team at that point. Yeah. Also with us this week. This is the Harvard guy. A man who, according to Wikipedia, and I'm sorry you had to hear about it this way, Ben. Here's a Wikipedia was page? For, was formerly a contributor to Slate, according to Wikipedia. What? Uh, I thought you were a Slate colleague. I know you are the author of The Hot Seat, A Year of Outrage, Pride, and Occasional Games of College Football, out on August 30th, pre-order today. It's Ben Mathis Lilly. Hey, Ben. Hey, guys. I want to point out, uh, for those who are not jacked into our YouTube feed, which does not <laughs> exist, that uh, Joel er, and Josh actually have pretty much the same kind of glasses. So I don't, I'm not sure what Josh's, what Josh's premise is working from, that Joel uh, I like old. looks old, my, and he doesn't, not, I guess. I'm, oh, okay. Did okay. you go to War- Warby Parker? Is that what you, your, where you got your glasses from, Josh? No, I went to some store. I don't remember. <laughs> the eye doctor, I guess. Okay. Hey, I, real, they had like a display on the wall. Isn't that how it works? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I was trying to be a little bit more stylish, but that's fair. I just want to know, because you did correct me about the Harvard thing. And I just want you to know, Josh, that, you know, back in the day uh, when Ben and I worked at another uh, shop, I would occasionally go to the Harvard campus, the Harvard football campus, and send a picture from the football stadium saying that I'd conquered Harvard. Um, and this is a true thing, right, Ben? Make sh- I'm not making that up. You would usually be like flexing or something. Like, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. That happened more than once. <laughs> yeah, two or three times. It's been more than a week since the Big Ten snatched away the Pac-12's two biggest names, USC and UCLA, to expand its footprint from coast to coast. And now college football fans play a waiting game. Will Oregon and Washington eventually get an invitation to join the Big Ten? Will it be Cal and Stanford? Will the Pac-12 form a coast-to-coast alliance with the ACC? 
Will the Big 12 pick off the league's leftovers to put the league out of its misery? There's a lot of questions here, but clearly college football is in transition to something different from any configuration we've ever known, unless you've always thought Rutgers and UCLA belonged in the same league. But here at Hang Up and Listen, instead of belaboring our favorite game's uncertain future, we've decided to embrace it. Today, we're going to talk about what we think will happen and then pivot to what we want to see. So, Ben, our college football expert, if you had to guess... What do you think is going to be the next big move? I think the next big move is going to be two years of nothing, which I'm disappointed by. So I was kind of initially defending this this UCLA-USC thing. You know, the Rutgers part of it is still very strange. But there's some historic kinship between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, the Pac-8, the Pac-10. You know, they they play in the Rose Bowl. You've seen USC, if you're old enough, you've seen USC in Michigan play in the Rose Bowl. You've seen USC and Ohio State play. So I, I wasn't I, I wasn't as alienated by some, as some people are by that initially, but that was because I assumed that there were going to be other West Coast teams involved. Uh, I thought that, like, Washington and Oregon would be announced by now, or, you know, Stanford, is, as others have pointed out, the big tenniest team that's not in the Big Ten as far as kind of, like, pompousness about academics and, and the kind of muscular scholar-athletes that they're, they're, they're raising as, as fine men and women, etc. I am a little taken aback that this is not happening. And according to the reporting that I'm, I'm reading a lot of good reporting in The Athletic, uh, the Big Ten is just waiting for Notre Dame now. So it does seem like there's going to be at least a year, maybe more than that, where we are just playing these games. <laughs> USC and UCLA are in every sport playing against Nebraska and Rutgers. Uh, so I'm, I'm, dis- I'm disappointed by that. But yeah, I, th- I think the, you know, natural next big move is Notre Dame picks a side and then from there we go to Washington, Oregon, Florida State and all that and all that stuff. But I'm I'm curious how you guys who are not as blinkered by fandom of one particular team uh, see all of this. That's a strange accusation to say <laughs> that I'm not blinkered by fandom of one particular team, but um, I'll accept it. The big question that I have kind of beyond the musical chairs aspect is that everyone from writers to conference commissioners, to even like the Knight Commission, has all said what's going to happen and what should happen is that college football should break away from the NCAA and form its own thing. And so I kind of did this in, in reverse. If I if I had led with the idea college football is going to break away, you might say, well, oh, that seems a little like revolutionary. But like basically everyone connected with the entire sport, including some of the more like conservative entities all talk about it as an inevitability. And so let's assume, if we're talking about what's going to happen, let's assume that that does happen at some point in the next, you know, five years or something. My question, and I don't know if either of you guys have any thoughts or insight on this, is from the fan perspective, will that have any kind of effect on how we consume the game? Or will that be more of a kind of bureaucratic shift that doesn't really change the the facts on the ground. doesn't doesn't change the games. doesn't change the way that this doesn't change the structure of the playoffs. Like Joel, do you have any sense of like what it would mean practically if we were to wake up in a universe in which college football was all of a sudden its own, often its its own universe? I don't think so. I mean, at least to you all, don't you think the college football viewership is remarkably resilient. Um, we've accepted a lot of changes. You know, uh, within our lifetime, Penn State, Florida State, 
all, you know, these schools have been independent within our lifetime. And then all of a sudden they were part of the Big East or the Big Ten or whatever. And we just kind of accepted it. And we watched the Southwest Conference go away. We watched the Big East go away. We watched what used to be the WAC go away. And we just kept on watching football. And in fact, the viewership has grown bigger, stronger, more durable. So I think that, you know, just a change, a, a slight change in who's, making the schedules, who's making the rules probably won't be that big of a deal. Um, I, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, like once we have everything aligned, like once these teams are in the leagues and they're playing against each other and it unfolds, then we'll see maybe changes in viewership habits or whatever. But in terms of who's staging the games and who's in charge of enforcing eligibility rules and things like that, I can't imagine that fans will care. But maybe I know ben, you're the you're the Michigan man. So you tell me maybe you all will not stand for the NCAA not being involved and not having a clearinghouse involved. Well, before Ben goes, like, let's think of um, maybe a more specific hypothetical. Okay, so one of the things that the NCAA does is enforce a set of rules for college football, but also a set of rules that are kind of working and happening in collaboration with the rules for other sports. And so let's imagine that college football does break off. Does that mean 85 scholarships? is no longer a thing? Does that mean that there'll be 200 scholarships um, for for Alabama and, and Clemson and Michigan? What does that mean in terms of, you know, Title IX? I mean, the, if these programs are still affiliated with universities, you'd imagine that they wouldn't be able to get rid of that requirement. But I, I guess maybe the big, the big picture version of that question, Ben, is like how restrained are schools and is college football by the NCAA at this point? Or does like NIL show that there's actually, in practical terms, like no restraint, that these programs are already kind of operating in their own universes without any kind of meaningful oversight or control. I think they are operating without any meaningful oversight or control for sure. And I think that's why I'm a little more hopeful about the possibility that something like this would happen, that there'd be a centralized you know, a commissioner of college football is the thing that uh, whenever you talk to anyone in the sport about like, why does this bad thing happen? Or this thing that most people find annoying? Well, they say, well, there's no commissioner, you know, and so it's an in, it's an indefinite arms race. Uh, and there's and there's no way to and put, you believe a, a commissioner could actually do good things and would not be like Roger Goodell, who everyone hates and thinks ruins the sport. Well, sh- sure. I, I I, I don't like Roger Goodell as, as I don't think he's probably that great a human being or I don't think his judgment is that great on certain questions. But I think the existence of like standardized rules for sports is good. Generally, like you play sports because it's a competition under a certain set of rules. Like that's the essence of what sports are. And the NCAA right now doesn't really have rules. Uh, and so and and that goes sort of as far as like what conference teams are in, you know, or like what teams players are going to play for, like in any given year. And I I think that the sport would benefit just from a you know a narrative or viewership perspective from having some standardization. Like you know what is a I think contracts would help. I, I this is not like a necessary. This is not like a right wing complaint. Like I think like having negotiated contracts and like understanding like what is an NIL contract, uh, which teams are in which leagues, like how many commercials are in games, like. I think that you can look at the other leagues that are 
the NBA and NFL, the, the viewing experience and the fan experience is a little bit more streamlined and coherent. And I think that would that would be nice. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's going to happen because that require that requires a lot of people still way more, way more stakeholders than are involved in a 32 team professional league. Like people talk about this, like, like as if that's what's about to happen in college football. But it's, that's not really true. There's still like, you know, 50, 60 teams that have a say in this. And, and, uh, multiple conferences, so you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm more hopeful about what it could what it could mean, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. To me, I've always think the commissioners and NCAA is sort of a misnomer here that it's sort of, it's like a death sleight of hand because a commissioner is empowered by the members of a league. The NCAA is empowered by the schools and the members that make it up. So they're the ones making the rules and they can always fall back and say, well, hey, the NCAA is making us do this. Whenever these schools break off, they're still going to be sort of beholden to the larger collective. But I think the thing that you're sort of hinting at here that maybe, Ben, is that so when you lop off the Appalachian states and the Kent states and whatever, you're less restrained in what you can do. And then yet, then you can start making those contracts. You can say, all right, we're going to pay these guys. We're going to have standardized NIL language. We're going to do this, all the other stuff. So like right now, like, you know, Alabama is having to follow the same rules as, you know, a bunch of Mac schools, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you get rid of them and then you've got a bunch more like-minded programs, then they can make up their own rules and they can follow it. But then again, the, th- the, the thing that they'll lose is they'll lose the ability to blame the NCAA <laughs> for when things go wrong, right? Because yeah. it's like, well, you, got, you guys broke this up. This is what you wanted to do. So, I mean, the NCAA has been useful to them in this uh, up till now. Once they cease to be useful for them, they'll make up their own rules, but then people will find things to be mad about that. Well, I think the problem is that, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are things of that, that Appalachian State and Alabama disagree on, but I think actually the bigger problem, to, from, from my perspective, having, you know, talked to people around Michigan for the last two years or so, is that the, the big disagreement is is between Alabama and Notre Dame or between Alabama or, you know, between Oklahoma and Michigan. Like, those are where the real conflicts over stuff like how much you know, to what extent should football be connected to school? You know, like, I don't think, (laughs) you know, I don't even, I don't necessarily mean this pejoratively, but like, I don't think the Southern schools, you know, have as much of a commitment to that. And, you know, there are people who know way more about this than I do, but that's been true going back a hundred years. And so I think that's where the, you're talking about the academic reputation of Mississippi state. How dare you? (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, it's this sort of anti-Southern, like, regional bias that is the, the fuel of college football rivalry. And this is what, this is what we need to maintain. Um, it's funny, Ben, when you were talking before about the sort of solidity and predictability of, say, the NFL schedule or the NBA schedule year over year, when, in fact, it's college football, perhaps more than any other entity in American life, that has had that sort of predictability. I mean, so affiliations have changed, sure, schedules change, but like you can count on the the reason why it's become so ingrained in your life is that you can mark um, Michigan versus Ohio State on the calendar every year. You can mark, um, you know, you used to be able to mark LSU versus Tulane on the calendar every year, and we don't have that game anymore. And so we're used to, as college football fans, to these things kind of changing and evolving. But the thing that the sport, I think, really has to figure out is a way to maintain and embrace the traditions and the kind of factionalism that has made the sport endure and be so vibrant over the years, while also just wanting to grab the kind of like Champions League 
esque sort of you know money and 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 TV dollars that sort of everyone is going for. And so I guess the question that we're all trying to like fumble towards is like, what is the way to balance that and to have like college football still kind of exist in a form that we recognize? I think that when it looked like maybe we were actually going to do this two super leagues thing, like the SEC was going to pull in the Florida schools and Clemson, and maybe the Big Ten was going to pull in Washington, Oregon, that sort of thing. Like, I was actually kind of I was kind of okay with it for that reason because like I think David Roth said this but like he's not a big college football fan but he was talking about this he said it kind of makes sense it's like your hoity-toity Michigan Notre Dame type schools and and the West Coast schools fit into that versus the South and like that's actually a pretty good narrative so like if that is the way the two super leagues are gonna work like I I think that that does preserve like some of what makes college football interesting and 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 distinct from like watching the Jaguars play the Jets or whatever. And you said when it looked like you you think that you feel like that's less likely to happen now than you thought it was like a couple of weeks ago? I, th- I like, you know, I, I did think that this was like a, a domino was going to fall and other ones were going to fall this this year, uh, just as an observer. Like, I like why not put Washington and Oregon in now? Like, it does kind of seem like we're go- those schools are going to go somewhere. Like, why why not just do it now? Notre Dame is going to go somewhere. Well, why not just do it now? Clemson, Florida State. Like, let's just do it. Let's get it over with. And that kind of goes back to what I was talking about before is like, I don't really mind the reorganization like you're saying like university of chicago used to be a big major big 10 rival to uh the schools that are still in the big 10 but like doing it one by one one piece by one piece every every couple years or every three or four years because of the tv rights stuff like it just that that's what feels really tedious to me isn't that what we're here to do then i guess like this is the point we should pivot to what we actually want to see then right um i mean you know with a blank slate Oh, I don't know. Is do we want to do a blank slate or do you want to Yeah, go for it. What's your what's your, what's your kind of blue sky plan, Joel? Well, the big thing for me um beyond before you even get to teams or whatever is pay, making sure that the kids get paid. Um I think that would be you know the the best way to make it a more equitable enterprise through their institutions you mean, not just through NIL. Yeah, through the institutions not counting on NIL collectives or whatever, but like actually giving them salaries for being for having jobs, which is what they have, which I think would lead to more bifurcation between the haves and the have-nots, right? Like, I mean, all of a sudden, I think maybe a few schools tap out at that point. They're like, well, we just can't afford that. And then if you bump up the scholarship levels to the old, when I was coming up, it used to be schools gave out 105 scholarships instead of 85, right? That's another way to winnow away some of these other schools. And then for me, then I... I at that point, then you can set it up and run it like the NFL. You have like a Pacific division, a Midwest division, a Heartland division, a Southern division, an Atlantic division, and a Northeast division, and slot them in and then basically play a season like an NFL. So so then you don't have to go 11-1 and one every year or 12-0 and 0 to make a playoff. Like you have wild cards, you know? Um, that's the way that I think it should go anyway. I mean, I know a lot of people say, oh, you're going to lose the regular season, you know, all that kind of shit. But I mean, come on, we've already sort of beyond that anyway. Like, I mean, there was didn't there was one year Auburn made into the playoffs and had two losses. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't think people really care so much about that anyway. Like, you're not going to make Auburn, Alabama less significant just because those two teams are like nine and three going into a wild card game. What do you guys have up next then? I feel like it's definitely 
a <laughs> a blue sky plan when you're imagining the teams teams dropping out because they can't afford fair labor costs in uh, <laughs> in college football. But uh, but we can dream. Yeah, I just feel really caught in between feeling like what you laid out is is kind of inevitable in terms of how the sport is gonna shape itself with having a kind of love and appreciation for the stupidity with which like college football, um, you know, the the one sport that didn't actually have, have a champion that just like had random games at the end of the year and just like decided based on a vote um, of which team was You want to go back popular. to bowl season? Yeah, like I don't necessarily want that to come back, but I think the the tradition of college football is like kind of the opposite of what Ben said, or, or it's like, it's like what Ben just said is annoying. It's just like (laughs) things changing every couple years, like fumbling towards a system or or around a system that doesn't necessarily make sense. And so just imagining this world that's like organized into like divisions that all have the same number of teams that have, that play the same number of games every year. It just seems like totally antithetical to the spirit of the sport. But at the same time, just like I understand that this chaos of the the current chaos is not gonna is not gonna stand. And so, um, what do you want to say, Joel? To your point, like this is how ridiculous it is. Like trying to come up with the Northeast Division in college football. <laughs> like I just tried to lightly sketch one out, and I ended up with Army, Boston <laughs> College, Navy, Penn State, Pittsburgh, Rutgers, and Syracuse. I mean, imagine them trying to you know trying to convince the Southern schools that that. Anybody out of that division deserves a playoff berth, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, that, it's really hard to do it that way if you're going to preserve old rivalries and all the other the other cool shit we like about football. Yeah, so what I'm saying like is that the SEC like the should reinvite Sewanee and Tulane, <laughs> get the University of Chicago back. Georgia in there. Tech? No, I like i i feel I feel lame, Ben, and like feeling nostalgic for the the college football of, of my youth, which was obviously like fucked up in a lot of, a lot of different ways. But um, I, I guess I don't have the answer, but just like, is there a way to maintain the kind of like balkanized system that I feel like is actually kind of important? Like, I, I feel like the fact that it doesn't make sense is kind of partly an explanation for why college football has its, has its, its charms. I think that that you and and everyone on the college football internet way over nostalgize the bowl era. And to me the defining <laughs> the defining image of the bowl era is like some guy named Gary who makes $950,000 a year to run the Fiesta Bowl explaining why like Nebraska can't play Penn State <laughs> in the final. And like we hated that. Like everyone hated that. That's why this that's why this all happened cuz it was annoying. It wasn't like everyone wasn't like, "Oh, yes, the regional charm of not being able to see Miami play in the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl." I I love this. It's such it's such pure Americana. Like no one was saying that at the time. But just like the the phrases Southeastern Conference and Pod System. It's just like <laughs> what I don't want to live in a universe in which those two things those two things are together. And Ben, don't you think I thought the the defining image of the bowl era where all this shit really goes left is Scott Frost begging voters after beating the shit out of Tennessee, <laughs> like, hey, would you rather play us or would you rather play Michigan? Like I always thought that's the, sort of the defining image of the bowl era and how we ended up getting here in the first place, right? That split 
national title between Michigan and, and, and Nebraska that year. I support that you bringing up a, yet another piece of evidence that Peyton Manning's Heisman candidacy that year was, was deeply flawed. <laughs> he did not beat Florida. He did not beat Nebraska. Uh, Charles Woodson's team was undefeated. I love the Rose Bowl. I think the Rose Bowl, I, you know, my dream is that, that we, have, we have these super leagues and there's some kind of stability and common set of rules, but basically you still play a regional schedule and that you play the final in the Rose Bowl. So like, I'm not, I, I, when I heard the word wild card come out of your mouth, I was like, oh my God, a wild yeah. card, you know, like. I guess what I'm saying, what I would want is like pre-NFL, AFL merger, pro football and like pre-interleague play baseball. Like I want separate leagues that never teams that never play each other except for a champ except for for a championship like that would maintain the kind of excitement and scarcity of like that's that's part of the cool that's the the one cool thing about bowls you guys must agree is that like you get to see a rare mm. a rare matchup um and it feels special and the bowl so, season now or no, the bowl no, season the old, of our the youth old, the old bowl okay. the old bowl season yeah i agree i don't want to see michigan and i don't want to see michigan and oklahoma playing every year like i i totally agree with that like i i think that's what like that's the tv guy's dream right it's like I, i'm quoting david roth again but like monster fights like they want monster fights every week because they want it to be brand versus brand and that was like the whole idea behind the soccer super league and it's why everyone hated the soccer super league because because soccer fans actually do still want to, you know, see, you know, Liverpool playing Leeds or Norwich City or whatever. Like that's part of the experience for them. So, yeah, I, I don't want, I don't want to be these, I don't want these games to be played in television studios. Like I, I mean, that's kind of my like top priority is preserving the like, the fact that going to a college football ga- game is like fun for specifically, you know, it's fun because there's a lot of people there and 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 there are people from your part of the country and, and they know the same kind of weird histories as you do. Like, I think that's, that even as a, as a business, uh, you know, as a, as a factor in the business strategy, like, I think they have to preserve that. Like, no one wants, to, no one wants to go to Jets Jaguars when they're going to a college football game because they could just go to Jets Jaguars. And the next segment, Josh talks to Ben Rothenberg about Wimbledon. On Sunday at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, I'm not sure who won the croquet, but Novak Djokovic won his fourth straight Wimbledon men's singles championship, beating Nick Kyrgios in four sets. It was his 21st Grand Slam title, one behind Rafael Nadal, one ahead of Roger Federer, in what might be his last slam until next year's French, given that the unvaccinated Novak is currently banned from entering the U.S. and was deported from Australia in January. And yet, With all of this swirling around him, Djokovic mostly felt like a bit player these last two weeks as Kyrgios shouted and pouted and aced his way to his first major final, even as news broke out of Australia that he's been accused of assaulting an ex-girlfriend. Joining us now is Ben Rothenberg. He is a senior editor for Racket Magazine. He also writes for Slate about tennis occasionally, and he is the host of the world's greatest tennis podcast, No Challenges Remaining. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for that, Josh. Thanks for having me. And there was, I will say, a great article about the croquet by Chuck Culpepper of the Washington Post during the tournament. No co- no concurrent 
croquet event during the tennis championships, unfortunately, though. All right, but don't sleep on the and croquet club <laughs> of aspect course, never. Is, is the lesson here. Never. Um, so, so from my vantage on my couch, the Curios I saw on Sunday was a pretty familiar character. He played brilliantly at times. He shouted at his player's box that they weren't cheering for him loudly enough or correctly. Um, and he also lost his head in just enough moments to cost himself the chance at a major title. Um, what did you see in the stadium? No, I saw a lot of that too. I've, I've made the very lame joke that, you know, Nick Kyrgios is NK is also kind of like NK North Korea in terms of the way that he's repeatedly demanded these extravagant showings of support and emotion behind him <laughs> at all times from his followers in his box. And it looks exhausting, honestly, being in there. A lot of times I feel bad for these people, especially the ones who are in the front row. The people who are in the back row can stay seated most of the time. It's just of the front row people stand up. Um, but yeah, he, he's, you know, someone who's always had a very chaotic energy around him for most of his career. And he was able to harness that um, in large part, really throughout most of this tournament, he didn't really lose it meaningfully by his very, you know, skewed standards in this final. I mean, he was, he was complaining to his box a bunch during uh, the second half of this match, but I don't know that it ever really looked like it was effectively derailing him. I mean, maybe in the fourth step tiebreak, he had a uh, kind of lapse of concentration early that could have been, you know, tied to some of the uh, fatigue from all the extracurriculars in the match. But for the most part, I thought he played a pretty pretty good final. And, and Novak was just really good and really focused and really sharp and played, you know, very, very well to beat someone who he knows is a dangerous opponent who he had never beaten before in their two previous meetings. He never won a set off of in their two previous meetings. So I thought actually just on a pure tennis level, both of them uh, did pretty well. Yeah, it's funny because Kyrgios plays a style where a couple of points are going to be decisive just because he's so good in his service games. And that can work in his favor. And sometimes it can work against him. Like if you're an incredibly volatile player who plays a style where you've got to be super sharp in a couple of pretty specific moments and matches, that isn't necessarily going to be in your favor. And there was a 40 love game and Kyrgios made it very clear to everyone in the stands and uh, everyone watching on television that it was a 40 love game where he was just like so mad at his box that they like lost their focus. Just like the dictionary definition of projection. Um, and I'm just <laughs> curious whether he actually believes the stuff that he's shouting at them or whether he realizes that he's being absurd when he's like throwing it on like whatever his sister yeah. uh, for not like cheering uh, appropriately. No, it's a good question. Well, he didn't get asked directly today, but you know, a lot of tennis players do rely on their boxes for external support. They're very much alone, you know, in tennis in a, in a grand slam match. There's no coaching allowed at this point. Actually, they're going to change that rule a bit soon for an experimental uh, phase in men's tennis for the first time. But, you know, you're alone out there. And so he, he just wants to feel some connection to something. And he has these loved ones and close family of his, uh, you know, sitting 20, 30 feet off the court in, in his box. And he, yeah, just tries to have a conversation with them or feel connected to them during the match to to give him some sense of, of anchoring out there. But yeah, I don't know that he really actually thinks he's losing points because they weren't clapping loudly enough after the previous point. But he does make them feel that way for sure. And they're standing up. I mean, it's really a very calisthenic experience being a curious <laughs> supporter in a match. They're up after every single point. Or anytime he might be looking in their direction, they're standing and not wanting to look like they're letting him down. Um, so, you know, it's his own sort of support system. And like I say, he's a very volatile character a lot of times on court. And if this was something that his supporters, his team thought would help steady him, they were willing to, you know, put in the, uh, the sort of buns of steel workout that would have been standing up and sitting down hundreds of times during this Wimbledon final. 
So you've been going to Wimbledon for a really long time. You're familiar mm-hmm. with the British press and how the British press manifests in headlines and also in press conferences. You're also familiar with British crowds. And I find it really fascinating to watch how curious, while kind of often abusing members of the crowd and abusing his opponents and chair umpires, seem to me to become a fan favorite during this tournament. And then I was just wondering whether that was your kind of experience as well, but also whether that was at all reflected in the way the media treated him, because he sees himself as being kind of unfairly attacked and maligned. And there were some ridiculous moments like when he was kind of attacked for wearing a red hat or whatever that just yeah. that just seemed like they kind of missed the point of what's problematic about Nick Curious. But like, did you feel like the media treated him with kid gloves or was he getting um, asked kind of tough and appropriate questions? By his standards, I thought the media was pretty uh, okay this tournament. You definitely singled out the most ridiculous moment, which was when a reporter went on a long exchange with him trying to, you know, get, get a gotcha moment about how um, he had worn red shoes on court or a red hat and how the club was going to be speaking to him about this. And did he think he was above the rules? And this very sort of preachy, ridiculous, performative moment, which, as you said, is in keeping with some the, Wimbledon Hall monitor shit. Yes, exactly. Some, And that is something there's basically an interesting sort of divide in the British press, literally sort of a divide in the aisle when you're in the press room where there's sort of the tennis correspondents for all the papers. And they have what they call their news reporters, which is their what we would think of as like their tabloid reporters who are basically just there to sort of, you know, stir shit up. Uh, during the tournament. And those are the kind of people who are trying to get reactions out of people to try to generate headlines who are trying to have, you know, gotcha sort of moments or, you know, even just things that, you know, someone talked about the Royals or someone talked about Boris Johnson or whatever might be some sort of non-Tedis headline that they can get out of the Wimbledon coverage. Because Wimbledon is a massive cultural event here and, and is covered from all sorts of non-sports angles during the tournament annually. Um, and so Nick Kyrgios certainly is game for doing a lot of that. Um, but I think for the most part, the press was pretty okay with him, in large part because he was winning. You know, I mean, oftentimes... There's a real sense that Nick Kyrgios is underachieving and not living up to his talent and and sabotaging himself. And it's hard to say that when he's marching into a Grand Slam final and only losing eventually to Novak Djokovic, who's a guy who's won you know his fourth title in a row here. Uh, Kyrgios didn't do anything to be a real disappointment uh, on court uh, meaningfully. And his antics, as they were, especially in the third round match against Tsitsipas, um, were definitely bad. And he definitely that it was almost more the fault of the officials, though. Uh, for not cracking down on him, or the chair empire for not cracking down on him for what could have been dozens of verbal abuse code violations, just the constant stream of antipathy that, that he was receiving without anything. And then also curious to have a point in that match that uh, Sitsipas probably couldn't, should have been defaulted for whacking a ball into the crowd pretty hard in frustration. And, to, and yeah, so... Yeah, I think overall the press treatment of Kyrgios uh, wasn't at its worst, but I think also he's gotten mature. And he also had ways of, of, as the tournament went on, of really maturely, you know, because they have a new system in the sort of uh, post-Naomi Osaka French Open last year world where they ask, they let the players sort of make their own opening statement uh, in a press conference. They ask this very general sort of like, how was the match? Player name, question to everybody. And a couple of times Kyrgios really almost sort of filibustered on that and gave some long, like, technical explanation of what he'd done to beat Brandon Nakashima, for example, that sort of set a tone of just being very business-like in the press room. And sometimes that that held and maybe spared him some nonsense. It wasn't immediately like, well, you know, I had a great time at the pub last night. Could have been his opening answer in other uh, years. And this year he wasn't doing that. So Isaac Butler wrote a piece for Slate that I thought framed 
the tournament really well. And you talked mm-hmm. about this a little bit when you were with what you were just saying about the Sitsipas match of just being a tournament and kind of a sport within the last two years, um, starting with the pandemic that just has not really figured out how to deal with a whole slew of problems, whether yeah. it's Curios's behavior, Djokovic's refusal to get vaccinated, how to deal with Russian and Belarusian players at mm-hmm. Wimbledon, how to deal with COVID, basically no mitigation efforts at all. And the three kind of top 20 men's players who ended up withdrawing did so voluntarily because they then had tested themselves and, and tested positive and decided not to play, right? Yeah, and they were symptomatic, yeah. So it just kind of feels like the final that tennis deserved of like a player that maybe shouldn't have been allowed to play versus maybe another player that maybe shouldn't have been allowed to play at a tournament where players who probably should have been allowed to play weren't allowed to play. Yeah, no, tennis, I think, is it's been pretty stark, especially men's tennis, I think, to, to split those sort of two pretty conjoined uh, different events. Men's tennis, I think, has really sort of had a lot of dark failing to meet the moment moments since the pandemic started. And mentioned Djokovic, who's had all sorts of missteps and things have aggravated people about how he's approached public health and how he's been used his influence in really poor ways and irresponsible ways, I would say, in terms of preaching different, you know, quack science things and not saying he's anti-vax and what he views as the narrow definition of anti-vax, but obviously becoming sort of an icon of the anti-vax movement by willing be willing to sacrifice his career and not play lots of tournaments because of his continued refusal to get vaccinated. And so effectively his actions are speaking louder, I believe, than his words on this front. And as I think you said before, he can he's currently posed under current US travel rules. And we'll see if those hold for the next, you know, six weeks. They might change. It's been changing in a bunch of countries, but as of now he wouldn't be able to enter the US because he's decided to remain unvaccinated still, and they're not letting in unvaccinated foreigners at this point uh, across the U.S. border. So, yeah, there's been a bunch of different thoughts to how the tour has handled different allegations of abuse against different players and domestic violence situations, COVID restrictions, uh, different people flaunting different COVID protocols. The Peng Shui situation was a different geopolitical situation, but the tennis has met with different levels of, of courage. I think women's tennis got very praised for standing up for, for Peng Shui and for pulling their tournaments out of China. The ATP still has their tournaments in China as of this year. It's maybe not clear that they're going to actually happen because of various COVID crackdowns that are still happening in China and life is very much not back to normal. Uh, and they're not really in a post-pandemic world in China, it seems like yet, to maybe where they're going to be hosting big events. But uh, yeah, there's been a lot of moments, I'm sure I'm even blanking on some of them right now, just men's tennis being frustrating and, and disappointing. And and yeah, I think this tournament hit a lot of those notes pretty pretty clearly. Uh, yeah, the Russian situation, one number one, Daniel Medvedev, not in this tournament because he wasn't able to play. And actually, because and then tennis responded by removing ranking points, which ensured that Medvedev would stay at number one. Then uh, there's the whole Rabakina situation on the women's side I don't think we're going to get to. But, you know, yeah, it, it's been a, a messy time for men's tennis and left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths in many different flavors. Medvedev posted on social media that he was having a great Sunday watching the Formula One race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad he, was, uh, he was enjoying himself. Yeah, before we get to the women's final... Wanted to ask you about Djokovic described as a bromance during the yeah. on-court interview after the match between Djokovic and Kyrgios. It seems like probably easier to maintain the bromance given the Djokovic won and Kyrgios lost, that it kind of maintains their spots in the in the pecking order. I don't know if Djokovic would have been so 
happy if the roles had been reversed, but Kyrgios had been very critical about um, Djokovic's COVID tour in uh, in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been very critical of Djokovic arguing to ease pandemic restrictions in Australia prior to the Australian Open, but then mm-hmm. kind of turned around and criticized his own government, the Australian government, for the way that Djokovic was treated. And, you know, before any of this happened on your podcast, Ben, in 2019, Kyrgios said that Djokovic was basically corny and and needy and, like, was basically pathetic for the way that he, like, was desperate for fans to like him the way that they liked Federer. If, I mean, that's yep. like a, a summary, of that, but I think an accurate one. But anyway, what do you think What do you think happened here? Is it that they both kind of see themselves as like poor, sad, put-upon people that are unfairly criticized, and so they've run into each other's arms? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> honestly, that's kind of right, I think, on some level. I, yeah, yeah. I, I sat down with Kyrgios for this podcast interview in 2019, and he ripped uh, Djokovic. And it was not friendly at all, but he really ripped Djokovic in a lot of times uh, in this interview, saying that he, yeah, he was desperate to be liked, cringeworthy, made fun of the celebration, which I noticed that, uh, that Djokovic decided to do after he came back on the court from hugging his box. He did... Uh, what we sort of mockingly call the boob throw <laughs> celebration, where he's you know taking his heart and giving it to each corner of the crowd. So I did, I did wonder. I hadn't seen Djokovic do that in a while. I'm not sure if he's been doing it consistently or not, but I did take note of him doing that today, and thought that was maybe kind of pointed. But yeah, I mean, these are not two people who've gotten along. I mean, Kyrgios is so irreverent and you know mean a lot of times, and, and Djokovic can be an easy target. And Djokovic, and he was saying things about Djokovic that a lot of people say privately about you know. Uh, trying too hard to be liked and things like that, but he was just putting it on blast in this very public setting in a way that was pretty shocking for a lot of people to hear an, another you know relevant top player say uh, publicly like that. Yeah, I think when it came to just this year in Australia, where, jo- where Djokovic was in the middle of this massive geopolitical storm, getting you know detained and then eventually you know held in migrant detention center and then deported for having his exemption for being able to get in unvaccinated. Uh, revoked essentially. I'm not sure how much people were curious was just being a contrarian and wanting to, you know, just seeing, you know, a chance to sort of go against the grain and thereby support Djokovic, who was very unpopular and very unsympathetic in Australia, and how much he actually felt bad for the guy. But also, I mean, that was a sort of specific circumstance. I'm not sure their personalities really line up to click together in any meaningful way. I mean, they were had this very bizarre Insta story exchange yesterday, the day before the final, uh, as we're recording this, where they were joking about going out and having the winner pay for dinner. And then Kyrgios was like, let's go clubbing and go nuts and stuff. And it's just like this weird performative bromance that they're doing just was just, yeah, dis- disorienting and confusing and strange as so much of this tournament was. Yeah, I mean, there's just been this very strange, starting with the Tsitsipas match, sort of undercurrent in the tournament that feels like very middle school. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the conversation in the, the Tsitsipas press conference and then the curious response was like about who is more liked <laughs> yeah. in the locker room. And then you have this, like you said, performance of kind of mutual affection done for the world's benefit. And it's not like tennis players are like the best judge of character. So it's not, I don't know if, if we should really put a lot of stock in who's liked more or, or, or less, but just the way in which that became kind of a talking point during the tournament. It also just felt like a, I'm not here to make friends, just like very kind of like reality TV sort yeah. of situation that overwhelmed the sporting aspect. And look, reality TV might be the operative word because there is a Netflix crew that's been following Curios for much of this year 
for this uh, Drive to Survive-esque show that the tennis tours are, are facilitating the production of this year that's going to come out next year. And so maybe Curious is doing some of this to be literally performative for, for that show. Yeah, that'll be fascinating to see. Yeah, so and he's definitely been going to be a main character of a, by every you know signal that, and it just would make sense. He's just such a fascinating character, period. With the kind of stuff they're getting behind the scenes, I'm sure is also going to be compelling in its own ways. But yeah, definitely very middle school. I mean, and and Tsitsipas said this bluntly, calling him a, a bully, which is you know a good middle school term that I do think applies in a lot of senses. Um, and you know, and saying, I mean, very evil. It's not a phrase you hear athletes say about their opponents very often, calling each other evil. But that was what Sitsipas said, and and Kyrgios responded by saying Sitsipas is a weirdo with no friends, essentially. So it was, you know, uh, yeah, very uh, middle school exchange. So that was sort of the level and the frequency we were operating on here. So on the women's side, it was more of a sporting event, <laughs> I would say, mm-hmm. and. Elena Rybakina, who won the title, um, and Anz Jabir, just both very interesting players, but also interesting in terms of what, what they represent and who they represent. Anz Jabir, first Arab and first African woman ever in a major final. Um, Elena Rybakina, born in Russia, I believe still lives in Russia, right? Her family is definitely in Russia. <laughs> So that's a great question, which she did not answer directly. She was asked, because it says on her sort of on the data we get for players that she was born Moscow, residence Moscow, is what it says on her page. And she was asked, where are you based now? And she was, and she said, I'm based uh, on tour. <laughs> Travel a lot. She didn't really give a specific answer for where she lives. That's, that seems true. But she represents Kazakhstan because yeah. the Kazakh Federation, you wrote about this in a piece for Slate when this ban went, went down originally, um, that a lot of players who were born in Russia were given money and support by Kazakhstan in a specific strategy to try to build up their standing as a tennis nation. They did pretty good mm-hmm. scouting um, with Rabakina, who is an amazing player who is kind of under-resourced in Russia. But like, how should we think about this, Ben? I mean, this is a tournament that went out on a limb and kind of against really the prevailing wisdom in sports and kind of in society in banning individual Russian and Belarusian players for the actions of their countries. And then a woman who probably lives in Russia and definitely was born there um, ends up winning the tournament. Yeah, and Rybakina did represent Russia in uh, junior competitions as well. If you look at old junior Grand Slam shots, she was in as a Russian flag next to her name in those. So she definitely was affirmatively Russian at some point. But and, you know, in the head of the Russian or the sort of Russian tennis federation, Tsar Shamil Tarpashev, people may remember for his offensive comments about the Williams sisters years back, he was quick to jump in after Rabakina was having success at Wimbledon, saying she was a, a product of Russia and something for Russia to be proud of, which kind of shows, I think, that when, that the Russian people in tennis and whatever would have turned anything that happened in Wimbledon into propaganda one way or another, and it was kind of futile. Uh, for Wimbledon to think they could sort of outfox the Russian propaganda machine in any way and stop them from getting their messaging across. But I think that, you know, really on a more technical level, which a lot of people within Russian tennis circles do agree with, it's kind of shows a failure for Russian tennis to have this player, this immense talent in Rabakina, grow up in Moscow, and for them to just completely fail to give her the resources and to nurture her into the champion that she had the potential to be, and that she goes to Kazakhstan and has played for Kazakhstan for several years now. She played for them at the Olympics. She's played uh, in Fed Cup or Billie Jean King Cup, the women's team national competition after a few years. You know, they let her slip through and she could have been their first women's singles grandstand champion since Maria Sharapova won her last one in uh, 2014. So it hasn't been the richest generation of Russian women's tennis success. And here they are losing uh, Rabakina to a, a neighboring country. 
so I think in some ways it's, it should be seen as an embarrassing moment for, for Russian tennis, even if there is this potentially awkward moment, yes, of, of the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, uh, having to have the hand the trophy over to this woman who's going to take some version of it back to Moscow. And that's really what the whole point of this was, right? Is just trying to avoid yeah. the, the photo op and the and the PR. So I guess to that extent, maybe it wasn't a success. And, you know, the, an, an Anz Jabir victory would have been the feel-good story of the year. And just a, apart from kind of how much of an inspiration she's been and how much of an inspiration she's actively trying to be to women and girls in her country and in the Arab world. She's just such a delightful person, just has a great kind of spirit and energy around her. And the fact that she lost doesn't really take anything away from that. But it it does feel kind of fitting that Wimbledon like did not end up getting that um, that story and ended up with something a lot more complicated and harder to you know, wrap your mind around. No, and, and Jabir is, as you said, she's a pioneer for where she comes from, an Arab woman, North African woman, part of the world has not produced many, you know, female sports superstars globally, and certainly in this biggest women's sport of professional women's tennis. She's from Tunisia, uh, I think you didn't mention. From Tunisia, yes, Tunisia. Uh, and to have her have this breakthrough is big on any level. And then on top of that, she's just this unbelievably charismatic, magnetic, likable person who'd be incredibly popular, you know, sort of congenial figure from anywhere in the world. It just happens to pair that amazing magnetic personality and charisma and showmanship or showwomanship and just dazzling play on court with the pioneer stuff as well. She's just incredibly, incredibly positive figure for the game and very well liked and really an important figure, you know, for her region and for the sport in a, in a time that's still trying to latch on to, you know, women's tennis is still in a bit of a transitional moment in terms of trying to figure out who the protagonists of the sport are. We had Iga Svantec come into the tournament on a 35-match win streak that ended at 37 when she lost in the in the third round here. Uh, not surprising, she hasn't played her best on grass. And there's a few other figures like Naomi Osaka uh, who hasn't played regularly. We're still not sure exactly where she's going to, what direction she's headed in, short or long term. The Williams sisters uh, were here briefly in the first week, and they're not totally out of the sport yet, but are not seen as competitively most relevant in singles in terms of being full-time threats on tour. Uh, so, yeah, it's a transitional time, but, but I think Ons and what she brought was really, really positive. And she was in a sort of largely feel-bad event in a lot of ways. She was an undeniable feel-good story, and there was a, just a lot of goodwill that she created and, and earned here. Ben Rothenberg is a senior editor for Racket Magazine. He also writes about tennis for Slate. And got to say it again, world's greatest tennis podcast. <laughs> no challenges remaining. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Josh. Up next, Chet Holmgren in NBA Summer League. This week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Joel and I are going to talk to Ben Mathis Lilly about his book, The Hot Seat on College Football, and the teams, the programs, the schools that maybe he wishes he had covered Clemson. We'll talk about Clemson. Uh, If you want to hear that, then you need to be a Slate Plus member. And with your membership, you get bonus segments like this one. You get no ads on any Slate podcast and you get to support our show. And that will give you good feelings in your heart. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangup plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus.
The NBA Summer League is underway. The annual showcase for the league's rookie draft picks and ascending young stars. We're recording this segment Monday morning, so you won't hear about tonight's showdown between top pick Paolo Banquero and the Orlando Magic versus number two pick Chet Holmgren in the Oklahoma City Thunder. But you've probably already heard quite a bit about Chet's debut, which came last Tuesday in the Salt Lake City League. Holmgren had 23 points, seven rebounds, six blocks, and four steals in the Thunder's opening win over the Jazz. Minutes after the final buzzer, Holmgren tweeted out a laughing emoji with tears in its eyes, as if the joke was on us. But his next two performances, one versus the Grizzlies and another versus the Rockets and its number three pick Jabari Smith, were more uneven. Chet did some things well, but struggled overall and didn't send any more post-game emojis, such as the folly of trying to divine anything from summer league performances. But Josh, sometimes folly is fun. What do you think of Chet so far? Rookie of the year? or Oluwakandian-level bust. Love the introduction of Oluwakandian as an adjective, first of <laughs> all. Well played. You know, there's a lot of talk about how representation is important, <laughs> how just how powerful it is to see someone in the media and in the world who looks like you. And just, you know, having somebody who's, you know, got kind of inverted shoulders, concave <laughs> chest, just like starring at the highest level, it just feels very empowering to me. So your suggestion that he struggled in that game, I take as a as a personal attack. But like, okay, well, if you can see it, you can believe it, Josh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> ben, there was some tweet that you saw that uh, that you shared about like what, what was it that he had t- two blocks in three minutes at 195 pounds. Yeah. Just imagine how good he would be at 215 pounds. It's like. A sliding scale. Every pound will just be <laughs> another block on his ledger. I appreciated that because it's like, just imagine how powerful this, <laughs> this seven-foot guy will be at the weight of, like, a regular Division two running back. Like, when he gets <laughs> up all the way to 215 pounds, which is, like, what some of my friends weigh. Uh, yeah. There are some sports, right, where, um, you know, soccer, uh, tennis, where you have, like, guys that are just all different body types and that's like a fun part of the game and like that's not necessarily the case in the NBA I mean I guess there's certainly like Muggsy Bogues and Boban Marjanovic both exist but like at this age uh uh at at this moment in our uh the history of our universe to see like a previously unprecedented body type make its way into the nba was something that i thought i didn't see and so you know to answer your question joel and and sort of to echo what alex kirshner um wrote in a piece about uh chat for uh our our dear website slate Summer League is not a time to question. It's not a time to problematize. It's a time to embrace possibility and fun. And so I made a really horrifying mistake, which I would not suggest anyone do. And I like actually watched a Summer League game because I was excited about the Pelicans. Mm. I will never do that again. Please <laughs> remind one. me never to do I've that. Done that. Yeah. It's rough. So highlights are the thing to consume during Summer League. And that highlight reel of Chet, like, doing fun things in that opening win was really great. And, like, that's the version of Chet that I will have in my mind until he actually plays a real NBA game. And you're not going to be able to erase that for me, uh, no matter how hard you try. I was going to kind of challenge you guys and ask, um, when I saw Summer League on the topic list here, how many of you were going 
entirely off uh, clips posted by World Wide Wob on Twitter, which is how I'm basically, this is what I'm doing for my analysis here. <laughs> Although I did, because uh, I, I did go to NBA.com and watch NBA.com highlights t- also to, to kind of uh, oh, extra to, credit. Yeah, build out that expertise. I actually had this summer league on in my office all weekend long. I'm not even bullshitting you. Like I had it on all weekend. I did. Now I'm not saying how closely I watched it, but it was on the TV at, at a minimum. The thing about summer league that I find so kind of uh, amusing is that um, like the the two strains of highlight and story are like Chet Holmgren blocks like Paolo Bancaro three sixty dunks and he has looked very good during summer league. Good for good for Paolo. Good draft pick. Um, and then like. LeBron is sitting courtside with his own snacks and also Russ is there and they're not talking to each other. And like, oh, Kyrie showed up. Just like the genre of like this person decided to like go and like quote unquote support their teammates, but is just like sitting there the whole time like John Morant just like scrolling on his phone and like whether they're there to like see and be seen. Oh, the other genre is like Woj talking to like Sean Marks and Masai Ujiri. It's just like the the kind of like people spotting. It's all it it it's all part of um the reality of the NBA, which is that um this kind of sad reality of the NBA, which is that a huge proportion of fans care way more about like transactions and soap opera than actually what happens on the court. And Summer League is like, you should definitely care more about what's happening on the sidelines and the transactions than what's happening on the court. I challenge that a little bit. Like, and one of the things I noticed when I was watching some of these Chet highlights were just like the the intensity with which the crowd is watching him and like the gasps in the crowd when he like, when he or Paolo kind of like spins and dunks or does something. And I think that's because like Summer League, like I love the Summer League sideline stuff too. Uh, and I think other sports should have like a special summer session for dorks and like mega fans because like, but I, I think that like that, that, that is what part of the interest is, is to see like how these guys actually play. And I think that's why people are excited. It's like, oh, like he can actually do this against NBA competition. And then, and like, I think it's cool that, that there's an entire crowd of people who, who you could get to pay, watch a game that does not have any competitive stakes just because they actually like, they, they want to see like Paolo run the point or whatever. Like, I, I think that's cool. And I think that speaks to the NBA's uh, success. Um, it's not just just about the soap opera, although the soap opera is great too. We've got NBA Pravda over here. Sorry <laughs> sorry for uh, questioning No, well, I was going to actually say, Josh is totally wrong. I mean, me, so me and a group of my friends have long talked about spending a weekend in Vegas to go to the summer league and just hang out and, and go to the games and, you know, just be there. I mean, the environment, yes, there is that part of it where, you know, you get to see. Yeah, Joel, would you would you and your friends be talking about going to Boise uh, summer league? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's one in Sacramento. I feel like Vegas no. is doing a lot of work <laughs> in, that, in that phrase. But but a huge part of it is like seeing those those top. I mean, the thing I, you know, I follow like youth basketball, right? Like, I don't know what it is that makes me weird like that. I'm not going down to like watching eighth graders. Like, I'm, I don't have a you know, scouting <laughs> report on Bryce James for you. But like, I follow a lot of those guys. Like, for instance, like at my high school, James Posey's kid is a star basketball player there. And he plays nice. at like an NBA camp league or whatever. And I, I follow that sort of stuff. So actually the Chet Holmgren thing, I was, I mean, I'd heard about him for years because I think the first time he ever popped up was in a viral video uh, hitting Steph Curry with a crossover when he was like 14 or 15 years old and just driving around him for a bucket. And I was like, who the hell is that kid? Um, but I don't know if you, again, you probably didn't watch this because you're not freaks. Last summer, I watched the U.S. Junior Olympic team 
that Chet Holmgren was on with Jaden Ivey, Jamie Dixon, TCU's own, uh, coached that team to a gold medal. You know who their best player was, Joel? The guy who gave Chet Holmgren the business in oh, game yeah. two. Oh, Kenny, yeah. Ken, Kenneth Lofton. I mean, so I've, I fell in love with Kenneth Lofton Jr. Uh, during that game. I guess, as Josh is saying, Kenneth, Kenneth Lofton Jr. plays for the Grizzlies now. He was undrafted. And he gave Chet Holmgren some work the other night. The large the gentleman but, out of Louisiana Tech. I mean, again, representation, man. I mean, you know, we haven't had an Oliver Miller <laughs> yeah. in the league in a while. You know, I hope I hope he makes it. But um, tractor trailer erasure, man. I forgot about tractor trailer. R.I.P. But yeah, man. I thought you know the thing about Chet Holmgren that has always sort of fascinated me, and you mentioned this earlier, Josh. It's like the disconnect. It, trying to imagine someone with that body type succeed at this level that I haven't seen before. So it's like watching Kyler Murray. You know, like, I, I I know Kyler Murray is a great athlete. He's doing things out there that are highly productive. He looks insanely athletic compared to everybody else. But I'm like, I don't I don't have a, I don't have a comparison for that. I don't know how that's going to succeed at this level. And so that's the thing with Chet is like, I just because I have never seen it before, I don't know what it's going to look like. But I was interested to see what it's going to look like. And I think that after this weekend, fairly decent chance that he's going to be pretty good. Like, I don't, you know, people are comparing him to Kevin Durant or whatever, but I mean, that's, that's absurd. But after watching him on the floor against other pros, I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure that'll work. I'm convinced that it'll work on some level. As long as you can, if you can shoot, that's a, that's a skill that's, that's prioritized. And he can, nobody can block his shot at seven foot one. So at least he'll have that, right? And did you see the guy who tried to dunk on him and hit him like in the like the part of your body that's on the other side of your elbow? Like that, because like, like he like went str- like squarely into the front of his forearms. Yeah, I I, I think he'll work it's, it's in the NBA in some respect. I feel like uh, my my views are being rep- misrepresented here, perhaps by myself. Like the, the reason to watch summer league for me, and I think for a large percentage of other people, if internet highlights can be trusted, was to get an answer to this specific question is like, what will Chet Holmgren look like in these games? But, and and I think it has been fun to see Paolo and to see Jaden Ivey. Um, they... I noticed you didn't mention Jabari Smith, which yeah, is really depressing. Jabari looked good. But yeah. <laughs> I was about to bring up Jabari Smith. Like a lot of these guys who are high draft picks who will potentially turn to be great players, it's like not at all fun to watch them, yeah. to watch them like <laughs> shoot for two for 15 or whatever, or like struggle in the context of a summer league offense that's being run by like, you know, a G League level point guard. And so I think what I realize, maybe I'm like too down, on, maybe I've gone too far in the other direction. Because like, I was excited to see Dyson Daniels, the Pelicans draft pick, who like sprained his ankle after, <laughs> Dyson like, two, after like two minutes. That game was just like a horror show. And I was like, I'm never going to... I'm I'm never going to make this uh, mistake again. And like, you know, it's sort it's sort of like I can't remember uh, where I'm uh, stealing this from. Whether it's like a friend or a stand up comedian, always a perilous uh, situation <laughs> to be in. But it's like how you want to like I want to order the sandwich or like the the pre made bowl at like the fast casual place. I don't like want to go off my own order. Like these are people that are experts at like making the meal for you. Like, I want to watch the highlights. I don't need to curate my own summer league experience here. I don't need to like do a deep dive and really like pull out oh. something from the third quarter. Like this is why World Wide Web exists, Ben. 
That's the problem. I mean, they, they let this other. Is, this is his time to shine. They let other guys play in these games. Like they let the teams like actually like audition the, the dudes. They, you know, like who they like for the teams. This is like who's the fourteenth or fifteenth guy. And they and they like which obviously that's what not should not be allowed. It should just be like Chet playing against Jabari and and so forth. Yeah, well, I mean, those or those guys are going to go play in China. You know what I mean? They're playing to go play. You know. Uh, uh, you know, Tel Aviv or whatever, but yeah. I, so the thing that you don't like about summer league is that it gives people an opportunity to right. not otherwise get them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so and, and Ben, I'm going to hold you to this because I actually we should all make a plan to go to the summer league next year when Victor Wimbiyama, uh, the the presumptive top pick in the 2023 draft, who played against Chet and Kenneth Lofton Jr. and Jaden Ivey. And all these other college stars, and was clearly the best player on the floor. Like, I mean, and, and if you've seen, I'm sure World, Worldwide Wild yeah. has some uh, highlights of uh, Victor. That guy is and he's has seven a very, for three. Has a has an interesting uh, body type himself. He he once he, again, yeah, <laughs> another guy who does who doesn't go heavy on carbs apparently. And I, like that's who I want the Rockets to tank for. Like, I want I think that guy is going to like revolutionize the league. But I saw Ben. And one of our work slacks the other day say that, oh, his body is going to get broken or he's going to be hurt. I mean, do you want to, you know, defend yourself in public? Yeah, against Victor Wimbanyama, you got to get out. You got to get out in front of saying he's a bust. You got to be a year. I mean, look, I'm going to be the naysayer here. I guess this is me evolving into my like my dad persona. But like, like, like what, Zion's not on the court. Um, Yao Ming's not playing. Like, that's the thing about these unicorns is, like, their bodies are extraordinary, and also human bodies aren't built to be seven foot three or to be, you know, have a 48-inch vertical and weigh 260 pounds. Remember how sad you were when the Knicks traded Chris Depps? I was so... I, <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. Like, I've been burned. I've been burned in the past by these guys. It's like, it is incredible to watch what this what, watch what this guy could do and what Chet can do. But, like, I'm concerned for them. I'm, I'm concerned for their health, like, the feet, their feet. We got to develop better feet. As a culture, <laughs> keep these guys on the court. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad that yeah, this is more of a paternal instinct than anything. Yeah, else. yeah, and no, not, I, I would love know, for that. You're I not, mean, that you're not, this is not you're not doubting their skill. Or yeah, yeah, like guys, that, seven but. feet tall who can run point uh, point guard. That's awesome. I love, I love it. I love it. And now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. So I wanted to name our Afterballs this week in honor of a human who um, kind of connects the three of us. He uh, plays high school football. Mm -hmm. He plays high school football in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, He's a track star. He has expressed some level of interest in going to the University of Michigan. And he spells his first name, N-Y-C-K-O-L-E-S, Nicholas Harbour. I feel like he could do for Nicholas what Dwayne Wade did for Dwayne Ben. This guy is like, what, 6'5", 230, and runs a 10 100? That's correct. Uh, and also very interested in academics and integrity and sportsmanship. <laughs> mm. 
That's his way of saying that he's not going to be considering LSU. He is, though. That's because he's really interested in running fast as well. He likes LSU's <laughs> track coach. So uh, it's, it's, it's neck and neck, I think, there. Is there anything you love uh, more, Joel, than a, a large football player who has track speed? Let's make a plan, since you guys don't want to go to the summer league. Let's all get together <laughs> and go watch Nicholas play this fall um, and then go to a track meet. Well, he probably won't be running track come next spring because I'm sure he'll just be totally given over to football. But we, we've got to get, see this guy live and in person. He's one of my new favorite players. He's, he's, he might be the new Najee Harris in my life. Wow. Mm-hmm. High praise. Yep. All right, Ben. So I don't know if it would be an illegal kind of booster activity for you to do this, but why don't you ask me what my Nicholas Harbor is? Josh, uh, what's your Nicholas Harbor this week? So all of us were on high alert this weekend when Moses Moody scored 34 points in the first three quarters of the Warriors summer league game against the Knicks. The all-time single game summer league scoring record was under threat um alas moses moody did not score again and so the records uh stood but it is held by another warrior the sharpshooter anthony morrow in 2009 uh anthony morrow out of georgia tech scored 47 points on 18 of 26 from the floor including seven of nine for from three um defying the spirit of summer league um he really should have gone like five for 26 and, <laughs> and one for nine for from three but you know we all make mistakes um, he said after the game, I wasn't thinking about it until I had about 42 and tied the record held by Marcus Banks because everyone was saying stuff. I wasn't trying to force it. I just wanted to go out there and whatever shot I got, make it. Again, completely misunderstanding the spirit of Summer League in which I was trying to force it is, I think, the official motto. Um, despite all that, he did go on to carve out a very good career for himself considering he was an undrafted player. He played for seven teams over a decade. He scored a career-high 13 points per game for the New Jersey Nets in 2010-2011. And he shot a career 41.7% from three, 17th all-time in the history of the league. He's nestled wow. right between Clay Thompson and J.J. Redick. But back to that summer league game. These things are so ephemeral, despite what uh, Joel and Ben might have you believe, that it's hard to find an actual box score from a 13-year-old summer league game. I did eventually dig one up, thank you, to the Internet Archive. Um, and so I can tell you that Morrow was playing in the backcourt that day alongside a guy who put up nine points to go along with six fouls and three turnovers. And until this year, that player had never even won a finals MVP. Uh, rough day and rough career for Stephen Curry. Also starting for the Warriors that day was Joe Ingles, the Aussie who bounced around a lot um, yeah. on various rosters before becoming a key player for the Utah Jazz. He was just recently signed with uh, signed with the Bucks after coming off an ACL tear. Um, Joe Ingles scored zero points that day on zero for seven shooting. The spirit of Summer League lives strong within him. Rounding out the lineup for the Warriors were Quan Prowell and Connor Atchley. And this hmm. truly was the night the Golden State Dynasty was born. They learned how to win. They began their record-setting ways. Their opponents were the New Orleans Hornets, your New Orleans Hornets. Mm. Um, the Hornets star starters that day are definitely a bunch of guys. You got uh, Darren Collison, Marcus Thornton, Earl Barron, Julian Wright, Anthony Tolliver. And this reminds me of how I bet my friend Chris that Marcus Thornton would be a better NBA player than Steph Curry. Oof. And in that game... He scored 21 points in 26 minutes. So thanks for proving me right, Marcus. He'll always be my guy. But enough about him. Let's look down the bench past Luke Neville, 
Mark Salliers and Larry Owens to a guy who put up zero points in five minutes, 38 seconds. His career history on Wikipedia does not mention NBA Summer League. It does list in order Spain's CB Breogan, Tartu Ulikul slash Rock, who he helped lead to the Estonian National Championship, then back to Spain for Basquet Manresa, then to the main Red Claws, and finally to Ratio Farm Ulm in Germany. Yes, it is seven-footer Brian Cussworth, Harvard class 2006. When he was with the Red Claws of the D-League in 2012, he said, basketball was too much fun to quit now. He quit a year later. Um, He knew (laughs) that he wanted to become a doctor. And so good for that guy, because I found his uh, bio on the Malincrut Institute of Radiology website. Wow. He is a diagnostic radiology resident. Um, On that bio, it says that his username on Peloton is that tall guy, if you want to follow him there. And his favorite website is The Ringer because he is a sports and pop culture nerd. And so our our conclusion to this meandering afterball is I have profiled this dude as the most likely player in Anthony Morrow's record-setting summer league game to be listening to this afterball right now. <laughs> yeah, Though I, I mean, do hope I do hope we're a regular on Quan Prowl's podcast diet, not to mention uh, Larry Owens and Marcus Thornton. We could really get that guy to listen to this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody knows him and taps him on the shoulder, and that we get an email from him, or that we, we hear from that guy. Ben was probably in his like finals club or whatever the fuck they're called. I was not in a finals club. I was rejected. I was rejected by Brian Cuss. By Brian Cussworth. Has, has Ben already told you about uh, what's the the actress lady that you <laughs> hung out with at uh, Harvard once? My class included, in addition to Jared Kushner, uh, Natalie Portman. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I've heard that story a couple times. That's a good story, though. You know, I mean, it's, do you know anything happened? I'm just, you know, it's just, it's come up. Do you know Brian Cussworth? I don't, but I actually was looking. I was just looking at this. You can establish a chain between me in in 2003 graduated. I think Brian Cusworth starts that fall. 2006, Brian Cusworth graduates. Jeremy Lin starts that fall. So kind of Harvard's three most influential, (laughs) important uh, figures, um, like uh, kind of passing the torch to each other. You've got to come out here to see the Jeremy Lin. uh, You know, there's a little park right around the corner from where I am that, uh, you know, Jeremy Lin is named after Jeremy Lin at a library right up here. You know, because he's one of Palo Alto High School's uh, biggest stars. Like it's him, Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh, you know, is a Palo Alto High and Devontae Adams as well. Uh, It's another Palo Alto High star. So it's a rich history. A lot of uh, connections here. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Ben Mathis Lilly, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. And Ben, we'll have you back, don't worry, when it's uh, release time for The Hot Seat, um, coming out on August 30th, pre-order today. Um, the premise of the book is um, it's a year in college football, and you followed around um, a handful of specific programs. Um, name those programs now, please. <laughs> Michigan, Louisiana State, and Florida Atlantic University. We talked, the three of us talked kind of as you were doing the reporting and before you were doing the reporting about a bunch of different places that you were 
considering. And if you want to kind of tell the story of your and college football and you want to kind of capture the particular dynamics of different regions, different conferences, whatever, there's a lot of different choices that you can make. And I know that you are considering a bunch of other places. And so um, folks can read about uh, Michigan, LSU, Florida, Atlantic in the book. But what are the other places that you considered and sort of why why would you have, have wanted to write about those places? I think the one that I regret not being able to cover was Clemson, because Clemson really speaks to like a lot of the different things going on in college football and what makes it unique and, and why it's changing. I really wanted to write about their coach, uh, Dabo Swinney, uh, the culture of kind of uh, Christian evangelicism around the around the program, the uh, the Southern history to it. I think the first black student at Clemson in its history was Harvey Gantt. Uh, who went on to be wow. the mayor of Char- Charlotte and ran against Jesse Helms in in these well-known um, Senate races? Michael Jordan famously uh, did not weigh in enough weigh in on enough for some people's satisfaction. Uh, so like, there's just so much going on there, and and then Clemson also being like a really good and exciting football team is something that I I wish I had gotten to do. And that was actually in the first version of the proposal that went out. It was going to be Clemson, Michigan, and uh, USC, University of Southern California. And uh, you decided it would be better to hang out in Baton Rouge as opposed to Clemson, South Carolina. I, <laughs> I look, I thought Baton Rouge was awesome. This is in the book. I think you've seen this chapter. Like Baton Rouge, they should be doing bigger things. Like it's a great, it's a great lifestyle down there. I hear you. I mean, look, LSU is a fun place to go to school, but we don't have to. We don't have to say that about Baton Rouge. I feel qualified to say that, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, the transit options are not great, but the food is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I wanted. To, I, you know, I think it would be fun to, to 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 go somewhere like that, just to see one of the, you know, to see one of these Southern powerhouse, uh, you know, like NFL factories in action would would be interesting to compare it to somewhere like Michigan, which still kind of thinks of itself as as really keeping campus culture and, and school integrated with football and actually does, you know, to some extent more than more than other places. You know, one Josh that had suggested, uh, which was which would have been interesting is North, I think North Dakota State. Mm. That's the that's like the powerhouse of of one double A or what, whatever it's called right now, a place where there's really strong culture uh, around a football team and a kind of a fun football team to watch again. Uh, but not really any of like the major commercial trappings or expectations that you that you get at a place like Bama or or Georgia or Michigan. Those are two that come that are off the top of my head. Iowa State I think is interesting because of, like they have a coach right now who's kind of gotten to them them to a new new tier of performance, and so they're like just like seeing the way. I also know my aunt and uncle were uh, were season ticket holders, uh, so like to see like those are people who like go to games expecting usually to lose like 42 to 3 and like to watch fans kind of adjust from that to like being disappointed that they didn't win the Big 12 and make the playoff is really interesting in a in a place like Ames Iowa that is not a, a traditional like blue bud like football location uh yeah and just and then just to you know kind of like see some cool stadiums would have been the other one to go to Oregon or to you know to to go to uh to Merton, Nebraska to see some of those kind of like hallowed uh hallowed grounds type of places I mean, I, w- I would love for somebody actually to do the uh, the converse of what you did and like go to the shittiest programs, like you know, <laughs> go see like New Mexico State because I actually, well, I mean, I don't, and I haven't read the book yet. I mean, we've only talked about it, but like I, I mean, and I'm sure maybe this is a through line in your reporting here. You're trying to figure out like why Florida Atlantic is trying to do this in the first place. Like, what is in it for you? And I'm, th- that's what I think about New Mexico State, for instance. I'm like, what are you getting out of this? Like, why are you even, why are you even trying? You know. Um, so I, I'm assuming what Iowa State and North Dakota State were the schools that were the options in lieu of Florida Atlantic. Is that right? Because you had to get a school that's kind of out of the 
don't yeah, know I kind of thought Florida Atlantic was interesting, especially because Willie Taggart is the coach there now. And so that allowed me to talk about the state of Florida in general and its history with football and, and Willie Taggart's time at Florida State, which, you know, he was there for a year and a half, shorter tenure than almost any other coach gets, uh, you know, certainly some of the backlash to him was racist in nature. And uh, so to see where he ended up and to, to be able to write about some of those subjects is why I picked Florida Atlantic. Also, this is very strange. You know, I, the, the kind of factoid I never like tire of is just like how big these Florida schools are and how recently they, they've existed. Like like Florida, I, I'm going to guess Florida Atlantic has more students than New Mexico State. Um, probably about as many as University of Kansas, to name another one where it's like, why are you doing, you know, another kind of why are you doing this classic school? Um, so just like the degree to which these Florida schools and their, their kind of semi-prominence in football reflects just like the way that the country has changed in ways that we don't, we don't fully process. Like we still think of Nebraska as like being like a kind of bigger and more important place than like Boca Raton, Florida, uh, even though like, you know, they might have comparable populations. I think you could argue that Clemson is the most interesting program in the country. Oh. Because of the religion stuff really fascinates me. Mm-hmm. And though this has been been written about a bunch, but how it's become so kind of integral to their program, and it's like not like Liberty or or a school like that, um, but it, but at the same time, it's this program that I feel like if we were having this conversation um, ten years ago, we would kind of like chuckle a little bit about. Clemson and talk about them as like a perennial underachiever and and one of these like classic schools where the fan base has like unrealistic expectations um, and they they think they're better and more important than they are sort of like maybe we would say about Georgia as well until very recently but the way in which a school like that has managed to like break through and one of the more like hyper competitive industries in America um, and establish itself as a blue blood while like having the sort of distinctive character in that way that like I find kind of disturbing. Um, It's just a, it's a really fascinating story of both kind of achievement that is like surprising and, and kind of unsurprising as well. I think I agree with that. And I think this, this reminds me of something I was speaking about with someone about last week. I was saying something about like, you know, as much as we give crap to Notre Dame and Michigan and Stanford for like, you know, having, for making a big deal out of their values and their academic integrity and so forth. Like there is a real difference between the kind of uh, football player who chooses to go to one of those schools and one that might choose to go to Baylor or Clemson. Uh, And there's like a degree of hypocrisy, obviously, uh, you know, at work with with Baylor's program. But like there is a real difference in what you're getting out. This is maybe obvious people, but like Clemson's a public university. That's why it's like Mm -hmm. different that they're like kind of have this sort of Christian rhetoric and and values in the program. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's like I, I don't think you're going to squeeze that out of of college football. I don't think even the Super League or whatever is going to squeeze that out. And I think that's like Trevor Lawrence would only would never have would never have gone to, to somewhere besides a place like Clemson. And I and I think that's like that's what's ultimately going to keep prevent college football from becoming a, you know, a place of like becoming like the NFL. Well, so since we're pitching a. You know, books that are, you know, better than Ben, since you're like, oh, I think this is actually the most. I'm going to give three programs real quickly uh, to, so we can get out of here. 
I think TCU, and I know I'm going to seem biased <laughs> on this, is one yeah. of the most. Because I think TCU's success convinced probably the bottom 30 schools in, in FBS that they could do it too. Um, that they could take themselves from the fringes of college football back into the big time um, and spend a lot of money, get a lot of name brand recognition, all this, you know, win at football and compete with the big boys, play in the Rose Bowl, like all that stuff is an illusion. Like it just does not happen. Like that's what happened at TCU was not supposed to happen. And it happened and it fooled a lot of other schools like Appalachian state, South Alabama, you know, all these other schools that I moved do up. like this take of yours about how TCU ruined college football. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I really do. I think that like people think that like what Gary Patterson did is replicable and it's not the other one, the other two Kansas state, because I remember I don't sports illustrated ran a, a profile on them in like 1989, like in uh, Bill Snyder's second year. And it was like the worst football program in the country. And they had this moment of success uh, in the middle of nowhere and they've not been able to sustain it. And it's probably not going to like, I, it looks like it's going to be left behind. And I'm just kind of like, what was it like to taste that success and for it all to go away? And that's also the sort of reason I think Colorado was really interesting to me because Colorado was like a national power, you know, for a little bit of our childhood. And then they like were hit by, you know, recruiting scandals, all this other shit. And they kind of Tennessee went, has gone through a lot of that too. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, man, like, what, you know, Colorado's a cool place. There's no reason that Colorado has to be bad at football, uh, but it just didn't, it hasn't worked out for them, uh, as it were. And so, I, you know, I don't know. So if somebody wants me to write the uh, version of Ben's book that, uh, like, I'm basically going to copy exactly what you did, just with three <laughs> different schools. Uh, I've no, pitched no, no. The three, this- so. I wasn't going to let this segment get through without me pitching the public, the the general interest public on my uh, concept for your oral history of uh, Florida f- football in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, the book that Joel Anderson was born to write, uh, Miami, Florida State, Florida, uh, from like 1983 to, to 1999. Oh, be so Plus he has so glasses now. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Sleep Plus members. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Joel. We'll be back with more next week.